You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We'd like to thank Mac Weldon for the continued support of SpyCast, reinventing men's basics, smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. Go to MacWeldon.com to check out this great product. We're joined today by Stephen Slick, the inaugural director of the Intelligence Studies Project at the University of Texas at Austin, a position he assumed 18 months ago when the program was created. He retired in 2014 after 28 years as a member of CIA's clandestine service, having joined the agency in 1986 after practicing law in Philadelphia. Between 2005 and 2009, Steve served as a special assistant to the president and the senior director for intelligence programs and reform on the staff of the National Security Council. He was previously the director for intelligence programs at the NSC. While serving at the White House, Steve participated in efforts to restructure and reform the intelligence community, informed by recommendations of the commission's charge with investigating the 9-11 attacks and the flawed pre-war analysis of Iraq's unconventional weapons programs. These efforts included a series of executive orders on U.S. intelligence issued in August 2004, key provisions in the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act 2004, the administration's response to recommendations by the WMD Commission, as well as significant amendments to Executive Order 12333 that were approved by President Bush in 2008. Before that, Steve completed five overseas tours as a CIA operations officer and manager, including service from 2009 to 2013 as a chief of station and director of national intelligence representative in a Middle Eastern capital. His assignments at CIA headquarters included service as an executive assistant to the deputy director of central intelligence and leading CIA's operations in the Balkans. Welcome, Steve. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. It's my pleasure, Vince. So it's quite an introduction. Um, you have an amazing CV, but I wanted to kind of walk back to when you decided you were a successful lawyer in Philadelphia. What brought you to CIA in the first place? There's a, let, me, let me preface this question by saying a lot of our listeners are at that point in their lives where they're thinking about careers. They're thinking about what do I want to do when I grow up? And if they're listening to this program, they tend to want to think about an intelligence career. So what was your path to the agency? Uh, that's terrific, Vince. I encountered the same thing down at the university where I deal with a lot of students, but undergraduates and graduates who are interested in careers in public service and possibly in the intelligence community. So it's 
useful to use my own story as an example, although no two are alike. Uh, actually, when I left the law firm in Philadelphia in 1986 to join CIA's Directorate of Operations, uh, I was not a complete stranger to the CIA. Uh, after my first year in law school, uh, it turns out I had applied on a whim uh, to be a member of the Graduate Fellows Program, one of the sponsored educational programs at CIA, and ended up working there in the summer of 1981 in the Office of General Counsel as a, a law clerk. Now, at the end of uh, law school, I decided not to come back and work at CIA, but it stayed in the back of my mind while I was practicing law in Philadelphia. And then one day, my wife and I uh, had a conversation and decided that we were going to uh, take a different course. And uh, as you mentioned earlier, I spent 28 years in the clandestine service, entirely uh, satisfying. And uh, uh, I often misquote a friend of mine and say I had, I had some bad hours and I had a few bad days, but I don't think I ever had a bad month or a bad year. Your first assignment was an interesting one. You were sent to East Berlin in 1989, which, for those of you too young to remember, was a pretty momentous year in the history of Eastern Europe. Uh, what what time of year were you sent there? What month? Well, actually, actually, it was in the summer. Okay. And uh, I know one of the great friends of the museum here is is Burton Gerber. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, who was a, a mentor and a role model to many of us. He was, at that time, the chief of the Soviet East European Division at CIA uh, and running all of our uh, operational activities in the former Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact countries. And uh, Burton selected me to join his division after training. And he's the one who made the decision to, to assign me to East Berlin. And to be honest about it, I was a little bit uh, disappointed, a little bit miffed, because uh, everybody in the Soviet East European Division at that time, or at least most of my friends, wanted to go work in Moscow, sort of head-to-head -head working against mm -hmm. the KGB on the streets, trying to recruit and handle agents in a, in a very difficult environment. So I was uh, a little bit disappointed in uh, Britain's decision to send me to East Berlin in 1989, but uh, as with most things, uh, it turned out that, that Burton was right. Uh, it became a, an exciting and a life-changing tour and experience for my wife and me. And, um, but it was in the summer, actually about this time, uh, that we drove our uh, operational vehicle from Frankfurt Airport uh, across East Germany, uh, in through Potsdam, and into East Berlin to take up an assignment as the, uh, as the third secretary and vice consul at the... Uh, at the U.S. Embassy in East Berlin. Well, in the summer, there was still a lot of uncertainty what, what was happening in Eastern Europe in 89. There were a lot of people who were still holding their breath over would the Soviets under Gorbachev intervene in a lot of these East European countries that one after the other were choosing to, to throw off communism. Uh, I guess it wasn't until later in the fall that people had kind of let out their breath saying, okay, they're not going to intervene. They're not going to get involved. And of course, in November, this is when the wall finally falls. Right. It's almost ancient history now, and I'm glad that you brought your listeners up to speed because if you look at a map today, of course, there's no East Germany, there's no East Berlin. Um, this was, of course, the occupied Soviet sector of post-war Germany, and East Berlin, the capital of the German Democratic Republic, was, in the eyes of Americans, the Soviet sector of occupied Berlin. And... Uh, in the summer and early fall, it was relatively stable. Uh, the octogenarian regime of Eric Honecker and the, uh, and the Socialist Unity Party of Germany was still pretty firmly in control, but there was some rumbling. Uh, 
But uh, shortly after Gorbachev's famous visit uh, in the early fall, uh, they started the torch marches in the mm -hmm. south in Leipzig and Dresden, and then the instability moved north. The uh, Flüchtling or refugees from East Germany who wanted to get out began to occupy the Western embassies, actually across Eastern Europe, but including in, in East Germany. And at that point, it was a full-on crisis. And as you said, it didn't take long before the, the government collapsed and uh, the American leaders and the West German leaders were forced with very difficult, forced to make very difficult choices about unification, right. about the presence of Soviet forces on German soil, about NATO membership for Germany. And needless to say, these were all very high-priority intelligence requirements for us. Well, if I remember right, Honecker was even considered more hardline than even the Soviets. Wasn't Gorbachev's trip to East Germany kind of a calm down, settle down a little bit, don't get caught behind the winds of change? Uh, if, if I remember right, historically, uh, they didn't even bring him to any areas where there was problems going on. They kind of gave him a very, a very uh, sanitized tour of East Germany at the time. Right. It was closely stage managed. But the fact of the matter was, by that point, uh, Gorbachev represented change. He yeah. represented something different, created a stark contrast to Eric Honecker. And as I said, these very elderly folks uh, in, the, uh, in the East German Politburo who'd been running the country literally since the end of World War II. And Gorbachev uh, was a breath of fresh air. Uh, and he, he descended off the aircraft and famously delivered uh, the socialist kiss to Eric Honecker on the lips, uh, welcoming him to East Germany. And the ride in from the airport was sort of a preview of what was to come and what the visit would represent to the East Germans who were growing uh, unsettled. They were chanting Gorby, Gorby, Gorby along the motorcade route. And uh, for those times in that place, uh, he was a rock star, mm -hmm. very dynamic figure. And uh, his visit, I think, in many eyes, was the uh, tipping point uh, for change in East Berlin. Now, obviously, they, they also would have had some very significant conversations about whether the Western group of Soviet forces would be called out of barracks if necessary to ensure stability on the East German streets, because the protests were beginning. And the question is always in those situations, how vigorously is the regime going to put down the demonstrations? Right. Will they use live fire? Will they call out the military? And in the case of East Germany in 1989, the biggest question was whether the Soviet forces would come out to preserve the East German state. Because everyone's thinking about the Brezhnev Doctrine going back to 68, and that was kind of the, the, the Gorbachev repudiation of that doctrine, I guess, in Poland at the beginning of 89 was kind of the tipping point, the beginning of the end. I'm wondering if... It had to, it was a surprise to everyone when the wall was open because even the East Germans weren't expecting it to happen when it did. How hectic was life for you in those hours and days in November of 89? Well, um, I'll, I'll tell a tale against interest. Uh, <laughs> if I were ever to write a book, and I've promised not to, um, I would have to admit that I was in a bathtub in Strasbourg, France, uh, watching on television. <laughs> Uh, as the Berlin Wall was breached. So that's just how much of a surprise it was to the CIA. Uh, one of their, their few operations officers assigned to East Germany uh, was taking the weekend off uh, in France. It was our first weekend out of East Berlin, and, and we wanted to get away. And um, so I missed the initial days. But as you recall, the events that evening, 
it actually was two or three days right. until one could actually get back into East Germany because the crossing points were literally flooded with people moving the other direction. And so, to be honest, there was not a great deal of intelligence work to be done in the, in the immediate aftermath right. of the collapse of the wall. Uh, there was later on, but um, I do miss not having been there that evening. It would have been a, a life-changing event. Yeah. It was in any case. I imagine that the the reunification debate was an interesting one for CIA because you have this organization, the Stasi, that that had been arguably more more repressive than CIA, or it's, of course, than CIA than KGB. Considerably, considerably yeah. more than CIA, <laughs> arguably more than KGB. Um, and you now are trying to find figure out a way: can we reunify these countries, and how do we do it most effectively? At the same time, you're trying to route out the remnants of East German intelligence. You know, they, they had very effectively penetrated NATO, very effectively penetrated the French and the West Germans, and maybe even the U.S. government in some cases. How did this play out? Because it, if, for those, again, who, who don't know the timeline, Germany reunified in 1990. We're talking less than a year after the wall falls. So this had to be done very, very quickly. How difficult was it to reconcile uh, almost like a denazification after the war? The, not that the Stasi were bad, but... They were pretty bad. So how do you how do you reconcile these former East German intelligence officers, bring them back into a reunified Germany? Well, as you mentioned, that the East Germans had a a highly effective, notorious, I guess infamous would be the more appropriate word, security service, the Ministry for State Security, or MFS, better known as the Stasi. Uh, they were highly effective. Uh, they were brutal in dealing with uh, dissidents in their own population. They were very uh, vigorous and energetic in keeping track of people like me and other Western diplomats that were living there. And that ultimately became uh, one of our principal functions as the East German regime was collapsing and the East German security service was entering a period of instability. They frankly, individual officers, even the leaders of the service, were not aware or didn't know what was going to happen. Mm -hmm to their country, to their service, to them personally, since many of them had been involved in what would be considered crimes, uh, brutal interrogations, imprisonment, uh, activities that would lead to legal recriminations in a united Germany. So there was great uncertainty, and uh, we did our very best to, to take advantage of that, as you mentioned, in order to discover what kinds of cases they were running in the West, uh, which of our in security institutions they may have penetrated. Obviously, we wanted to identify these folks and have them uh, brought to justice. And we were also very concerned at the time that some of the, the better agents that the East Germans might have had in the Western security establishments or in Washington or in Bonn, the capital of West Germany at the time, they might be turned over to the KGB mm. and extend their service uh, on behalf of the Soviet Union. And so uh, it became very important for all of us in the U.S. intelligence and law enforcement community uh, to find out who these people were uh, and bring them to justice. And I didn't look in on it after my assignment in East Berlin ended, but uh, at the end of the day, there were several dozen uh, U.S. citizens, uh, members of the service and civilians, who ultimately pled guilty or were convicted of uh, having... Uh, espionage relationships with the East Germans. And so uh, it was just a testament to how mm. effective the external arm 
of the MFS was in penetrating Western governments. Now that, you'll remember, was the, was the, the HVA, the mm -hmm. Hauptverwaltung Aufklärung, the main department for reconnaissance, and it was led by Marcus Wolf, uh, the uh, apocryphal model for John le Carre's Carla. Right, the man without a face. And also and the man then, yeah. without a face. Um, Who, of course, wrote a book about himself after... <laughs> And also uh, spent some time in the dock. Uh, he was eventually charged in the murders of several people who were killed trying to flee uh, to West Germany and uh, ultimately acquitted, uh, as I recall. But anyway, he was, he was quite a notorious Cold War intelligence figure, a really mythical, legendary figure. And um, truth be told, uh, he ran a highly effective service and... The East German security services were quite good at what they did, what they were charged to do. Now, ultimately, it wasn't enough to yeah. save an illegitimate regime, and the leaders of East Germany got what was coming to them, and the people of East Germany were reunited with the West and have gotten on with their lives. So it had a good outcome, but uh, on the intelligence front, I must say, uh, the East Germans had, uh, had a great degree of success against the West. I'd like to take two minutes to talk to you about Mack Weldon. You've heard from me before about their quest to reinvent men's basics and how we shop for them. T-shirts, undershirts, socks, underwear, hoodies, polos, and shorts, including their state-of-the-art silver line, which uses technology proven by U.S. Special Forces, NASA, and Olympic athletes under the most extreme conditions. Today, I want to tell you more about their Vesper Polo, a perfect product for SpyCast fans. The Vesper Polo has design inspired by James Bond. It has advanced fabrics and a collar that will always keep its shape. The polo shirt is unlike any other. The Vesper polo is even named after the company's favorite Bond girl from Casino Royale, Vesper Lind. Which makes me think that their next product might be the Dr. Holly Goodhead turtleneck. Make it happen, Mack Weldon. We're waiting for it. Nothing, of course, says realism more than Denise Richards as a nuclear physicist. All jokes aside, the 007-inspired Vesper polo is a timeless icon of style, sophistication, and calm under pressure. Mack Weldon developed a lightweight knit fabric using micro mesh for enhanced breathability. The cotton is combed to create finer threads for smooth, refined look. And the mesh construction simply keeps you cool, no matter who you're chasing this summer. And of course, Mack Weldon will always have the try-on guarantee, hassle-free returns, and free shipping on orders over $50. So go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using the promo code SPYCAST. That's MacWeldon.com. And use a promo code SPYCAST to get 20% off. So a, a year later, to keep the historical timeline going, uh, the Soviet Union fell. Uh, a wonderful Christmas present for us in 1991. Uh, and there were still relatively close ties between what would now be considered former Soviet states like Ukraine, Belarus, all the, the Baltic states. But this had to have been a, a bit of a, a gold mine for CIA to try to exploit these former Soviet republics, or at least develop relationships with some of these former Soviet republics that now we're looking at 25 years later, they're very, some of them are very close to the United States. Some of them are actually NATO members uh, who were not, uh, who were former Soviet republics beforehand. Can you talk a little bit about the CIA engagement, I know the government side, but the CIA specific engagement with some of these newly independent states and how we try to develop a relationship with some of them? Well, it was, it was, uh, certainly the case that there were going to be significant changes in the security structures of all these newly independent states. And as you mentioned, this was certainly an opportunity for U.S. intelligence, 
frankly, for the U.S. government writ large, for U.S. diplomacy as well as U.S. intelligence, and to um, come to some of these newly independent states that wanted to practice a democratic form of government and help teach them, help train them in how an intelligence and security service functions in a democracy. And in so doing, uh, we had hoped to develop long-term partners, liaison relationships that would be useful for both states. And I, su I would suppose, looking back on that, that, that there's been sort of a mixed record. You mentioned some of the Baltic states, mm. which have become terrific security partners of the West and of the United States and are even now uh, NATO members, fully entrusted with our classified information and to whom we owe mutual defense uh, commitments. Uh, other, sta other former Soviet states obviously took a different path and have turned out to be more adversaries than allies of the United States. But it was recognized as an opportunity. I think the CIA was fairly aggressive uh, on the invitation of the new leaders of these governments, uh, coming out there to the capital capitals, building relationships, providing some training, uh, doing some information sharing, and as I said, hoping to develop you know long-term alliances that would be useful to both countries. And I, I, again, I'd say the, the record on that with 20 years or more of remove is, is probably mixed. Mm -hmm. Some of the former Soviet states are great allies and friends of the United States and great partners for U.S. intelligence and others less so. I mean, people have talked about the, when the KGB fell and became the FSB and the SVR, you lost a lot of capability. Obviously, the KGB was massive, uh, had a lot, had decades of practice before it. We can argue what we want about how effective SVR and, and KGB uh, and FSB are as descendants of KGB. But what I find interesting, and I want to ask you about this, is how much institutional knowledge did you gain about KGB operations, about the way the agency worked because you were dealing with some of these former Soviet republics, some of the former officers of KGB not East German, they're not Hungarian, they're not satellite states, but these were former Soviet republics that now you almost have an uh, inside baseball view of how their intelligence agency worked. Did that help out the way CIA viewed, not just historically, but you potential future Russian operations? Well, I'm, I'm certainly no authority on uh, Soviet or later Russian operations, but I would say in my experience dealing with some of these officers that were serving in the services in the newly independent states and had been in the KGB previously, it was a fascinating personal experience uh, to get to know some mm -hmm. of them, uh, to hear their stories, the same sorts of questions you're asking me. Why did you decide to do this? What sort of training did you receive? Right. How did the bureaucracy work? How did one get promoted? So I, there's no question that collectively from building these trusting relationships with folks who'd been in the Soviet services and the, the KGB, a unified service at the time, but later the, the F SVR and FSB, uh, that we learned a great deal uh, about the institutions, about the people, about the way of thinking, the way of doing business. And I'm sure in, in many cases that, that proved to be valuable for us. So my, my background, for those of you who've listened to this, know a little bit about the fact that I spent the better part of a year in the Balkans in the late 1990s, uh, in Bosnia in, in, in 98 and 99. Uh, you were uh, chief of station in a, in a European capital 
uh, and you eventually worked your way over to become Balkan Operations Chief at CIA headquarters. Uh, at what time period was this, and, and then and then how uh, the Balkans still today are, are a very interesting place for those that don't pay a lot of attention to Southeastern Europe. They they have the opportunity to really make life interesting for us, whether it's having a genocidal civil war or if it's a conduit for a lot of uh, potential terrorists to work their way into Europe. So can you talk a little bit about your experience with the Balkans division? Well, you, you know, the, you've certainly heard the old expression about the Balkans as a, a part of the world that had more history than it could consume <laughs> locally. Uh, so it exported some of it in terms of, in terms of violence. Well, I, I only became involved in the Balkans uh, late in the decade of the 90s. It's important for folks to remember, as you said, particularly some of the younger listeners and visitors to the museum, that in the, in the era before the September 11, 2001 attacks and the focus of our government on countering acts of terrorism, the Balkans were the primary national security issue mm-hmm. uh, that the United States was prosecuting. Certainly through the, through the Bill Clinton administration, the Balkans were the president and the administration's number one uh, foreign policy priority because this was, this, this was violence and atrocities on a massive scale in Europe, something that an outcome that nobody hoped for uh, in 1989 when the Berlin Wall fell, right. the changes swept across Eastern Europe. So it was very important for the United States to play a leading role in that. And I became involved only at the, at the very end, uh, was in the region during the, uh, during the uh, NATO air war against Serbia that was intended to persuade them uh, to call back the Ministry of Interior Forces who were at the time... Uh, committing atrocities against Kosovar Albanians and causing massive refugee flows. Um, And that was a significant uh, military development in Europe, first time the U.S. had had fought in Europe since World War II. Uh, Ultimately, it was successful in that the the people of Serbia and Montenegro uh, rose up. Uh, Slobodan Milosevic, the leader of Serbia at the time, uh, made I think is generally regarded as a as a horrific uh, strategic error by calling an election that he didn't necessarily have to call under their constitution, and then he tried to steal it. Uh, the people wouldn't tolerate it. They marched on Belgrade and took back their government, uh, which was all very inspiring for those of us who were in the region at the time. Uh, then I came back to CIA headquarters. Um, shortly after that and was involved in managing some of these operations from the from the Washington end. But um, yes, the Balkans continue to be a, a source of a source of some uh, complex concern right. in, in the government. But many of the states have now successfully transitioned uh, into the EU and have aspirations to join NATO. And I, I'm actually optimistic that uh, the Balkan states will Will take an appropriate place in a in a in a Europe that uh, that helps consolidate their democratic gains right. and their and their their people's interests. Well, Croatia and Slovenia seem to be doing pretty well, right? And yeah. I, I understand Montenegro has now yeah. signed an agreement that will put them on a path, ideally, one day to uh, to NATO membership. Although it's a small state, these are very 
is very significant considering the kinds of widespread violence and lawlessness that was that that characterized the Balkans for almost a decade. Let's let's shift up to 2001. Um, you worked uh, for the director of Central Intelligence, George Tenet, and also for the deputy director, John McLaughlin, as an executive assistant. You actually started on the seventh floor, which is the executive floor of CIA, on September 4th, 2001. Uh, interesting timing, of course. So, but you were with the leadership team on 9-11 at CIA. Can you describe a little bit about that scene? Well, I, as you mentioned, I was, I was a staff assistant, and I was uh, working for the deputy director, John McLaughlin, and who was... A superb was and is a superb intelligence officer, a great mentor and friend of mine, and it was a real privilege to be asked to to serve up there and support those two. They were among the best leaders that, in my view, CIA's ever had, most effective and charismatic leaders. And so I was very new, um, didn't do a lot of didn't do a lot of speaking at that time. Certainly didn't have any influence, but I was allowed to be the proverbial. Uh, fly on the wall during that that fateful fateful morning, and I can recall that the security officers and and various people have told these stories. I think the director himself, the deputy director, John Brennan, the current director, who was there, a number of folks who were in that circle at the time, uh, have given their accounts of it. But uh, a security officer stepped into the conference room where the deputy director was running the morning leadership team meeting just to check on what people had in mind and make any decisions that needed to be made that day and we were asked to step into the deputy's office and look at the television and watch the the uh, aircraft fly into the second tower in New York and I'll say just you know a few things about what happened that morning in the, on the seventh floor at CIA first off there was there was great emotion uh, but great calm, great professionalism. Uh, the director and the rest of the team, including the Counterterrorism Center director, Kofor Black, and others, recognized immediately uh, that this was an Al Qaeda mm -hmm. attack on the United States. And the confirmation of that came up off the flight manifest just a few minutes later. Um, I would say it was not reassuring to see uh, how the government uh, reacted as a whole to a crisis like this. It took some hours for um, the cabinet to get organized and for the president to be in a secure location where he could convene his advisors and take stock of the situation and, and uh, begin to reassure the public. And I think much of that, the continuity of government, continuity of operations aspect was, was corrected shortly after and it would certainly be different today. But there was, there was some confusion in the government that morning. Uh, we, the government could have functioned uh, more effectively, but the president showed great leadership. Uh, Director Tenet and his team, uh, really, American, the American people would be proud uh, to have known how uh, the officers at CIA reacted that morning. Just one example that folks have probably uh, heard before, uh, of course, the executive director, Mr. Krongard, and, and George Tenet wanted to get as many of the employees of the CIA to safety as quickly as possible because there was a concern that the aircraft that was still in the air that ultimately crashed in western Pennsylvania was destined for CIA headquarters. There had been al-Qaeda reporting to that mm -hmm. effect. 
And so the director obviously wanted to get the workforce home and away from the building if that was the case. Uh, he attempted to do so, uh, but of course the, the counterterrorism center uh, declared that they were not moving uh, from their workstations and they stayed and, and did great work and they continued to do uh, heroic work. So it was an emotional morning. It was surreal in many respects. Uh, it probably will never be repeated in my lifetime, hopefully. Um, we learned some lessons from it, but uh, the CIA then that morning and from then forward, I think, has, has provided terrific service on the counterterrorism account and deserves a great deal of credit for having kept America safe from a second catastrophic attack. Did you perceive, or at what point did you perceive the shift at CIA from a traditional intelligence gathering institution to a counterterrorism institution. I know it's not 100%, but even John Brennan's talk recently about the need to get back to human, the need to get back to intelligence collection. And there have been a lot of very well-publicized and somewhat well-written books about the militarization of CIA since 9-11. Now we're seeing to move a little bit away from that, the idea of going back to old-fashioned intelligence work. But did you perceive that taking place? Not that day, obviously, but did as sensed it from that level of the agency? Were, were you seeing that coming? Well, it's certainly the case. Uh, everything changed that morning yeah. in terms of priorities, in terms of resources, in terms of mission. And this has been well documented, but the, the president gave the CIA director uh, extraordinary authorities to uh, in the counterterrorism field uh, only several days um, after the attacks, and the CIA executed these. They, these include included activities in Afghanistan mm -hmm. to remove the Taliban regime and deny a safe haven to al-Qaeda. And over that time, and the later time that I served in policy roles uh, at the White House, it, it was clear that CIA then and now devotes a considerable amount of attention to uh, combating terrorism. Uh, aggressively in some situations and across the spectrum. And that mission has predominated to an extraordinary degree. And I, I'm sympathetic to the concern that uh, while we've been focusing so exclusively, well not, not exclusively, but so predominantly, I should say, on counterterrorism issues, uh, we may have atrophied or lost some of our focus on emerging problems in other parts of the world that don't necessarily right. involve either the Middle East or uh, Islamic extremism uh, or now problems in Syria. The world's a dangerous and a complicated yeah. place and an unstable place. And to avoid surprise, we really look to the CIA and the rest of the intelligence community to be our eyes and ears uh, and warn uh, so that we're not surprised again and, and can can solve problems before military force is required. So uh, I would align myself with the people that, that uh, would encourage the, the leadership at CIA and the, and the administration that they work for to uh, return some of the focus to global coverage, to traditional espionage operations, and uh, recruiting and handling agents that we need mm -hmm. to, to tell us things that um, governments choose not to share. We, you were involved in a lot of the reforms that took place after 9-11. I want to talk about that in a second, but I think a more direct segue will be to who uh, an op-ed you recently wrote in the Dallas Morning News where you were talking about 
the need to reform intelligence. You actually said something. You said our system of intelligence oversight should be corrected before and not after the next time it fails to detect a shortcoming or abuse. And I want to ask you about this because all the reforms that you were involved in post 9-11 were a result in many ways of 9-11 or the Iraq war. You look back in history of the reforms that took place in the 70s were all a response to the Vietnam era, to COINTELPRO, to the family jewels being released. Can, is there political will enough? I mean, is this wishful thinking to say we can have efficient, constructive reform to the intelligence community, like what you're hinting at, maybe a move back toward into traditional intelligence collection or a way to oversee congressional oversight or other ways to deal with the intelligence agency without some kind of crisis, without another Snowden, without another Iraqi WMD, without another thing that sets us back decades or years. Can we proactively reform intelligence instead of trying to close the door after the horses have all gotten out? Well, that's a that's a terrific question. I should explain that the, the op-ed that my my colleague Will Imboden and I wrote was actually summarizing a report that yeah. our graduate students had prepared uh, based on research they conducted over the last year. You actually had the opportunity to meet them here yeah. at the Spy Museum. That was their reward for all of their hard work and and uh, careful research. Uh, but anyway, they wrote an extensive report on on how we in the United States supervise and oversee our intelligence community. And they identified uh, several dozen uh, recommendations for reform, ways that uh, the U.S. government, all three branches, executive, legislative branch, and judicial branch, could be uh, more efficient about overseeing and supervising our intelligence community. Because there is tension uh, in a democracy uh, because of the secrecy that surrounds intelligence operations. Uh, there are opportunities for abuse. Uh, in the mid-'70s, uh, the intelligence agencies, including uh, the FBI and CIA and NSA, were all involved in illegal and uh, unconstitutional activities, They're inappropriate, unauthorized. And the hearings conducted by the Church and Pike committees started a, a new era, at least of legislative oversight, oversight by the Congress of the intelligence community. Now, to be fair, the first thing our students concluded in their report was that no other government in the world supervises or oversees as diligently its intelligence community as the United States. So this is not not an opportunity for other countries to be critical. Right. We spend more time supervising and overseeing our intelligence operations than anybody else. We take it quite seriously. Yet the students believed, and we agreed with them, that there are a number of steps that could be taken that would make uh, intelligence oversight more effective, more penetrating, and more capable, as you said, of making some of the changes that we may need to make it. Uh, at CIA and other agencies. Pressure from Capitol Hill, from the Congressional Oversight Committees, is, a, is one of the few tools available uh, for changing the Intelligence Committee, which is you know, pretty traditional, pretty conservative, uh, averse to change in most instances, like every other bureaucracy. So the students thought that uh, this would be a good time to take stock, uh, make a few changes, and they encouraged the Congress, as well as Director Clapper and the and the folks at the Office of Director of National Intelligence on some steps that they might take. On the question of whether our intelligence community can be fundamentally changed, fundamentally restructured, have the priorities 
shifted significantly without a crisis, um, I'm I'm dubious yeah, about I, that. The history has shown right. that the U.S. intelligence community uh, can and will be changed in the aftermath of a crisis, uh, not before one. Although elections are significant opportunities with a new commander in chief, a new first customer for the intelligence community. Uh, a new president has a window of opportunity when they can uh, set new priorities, uh, enforce new structures, and bring change to the intelligence community. And uh, we're hopeful we'll see some of that after the coming election. Well, you were heavily involved in uh, the provisions of the very awkwardly named Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act of 2004, which I apologize if you named it. The, Ert- uh, the ERTPA. Yes, uh, which, for those of you who don't know a whole lot about it, this is this is pretty groundbreaking. This you know really codifies the ODNI. This is creating the intelli- capital I, capital C intelligence community as we think of it today. Uh, it does a couple other things also, but this is you know basically just a decade ago when all these massive transformations took place, and now we're talking about and it's not just your students. They're they're exactly they're they're really tapping into the, the feelings of many people within the community that there needs to be continued reforms and continued changes can it be done through things like executive order 12333 can it be done through uh things that don't involve congress actually doing anything because that might be problematic in the near future how much how much can the new director i imagine john brennan will with, with when president obama leaves john brennan may transition but i doubt president clinton slash trump will keep him around it's just not normal for that to take place, the new DCIA, maybe a new uh, DNI. How much opportunity? You hinted to it a little bit. How much opportunity will the new administration and the new administration at CIA be able to tweak this? Well, uh, just to to retrace and add a little bit of texture to the history, the uh, for your listeners in two thousand four, uh, in the aftermath of the the. Uh, submission of the report by the 9-11 Commission, the Blue Ribbon Panel that looked at the 9-11 attacks and considered what steps we might take to prevent a second attack and improve our counterterrorism capabilities. There was a law passed by the Congress in the fall of 2004 called the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act. It drew extensively on the recommendations of the 9-11 Commission, but also included considerable, considerable input from the Congress and from the, uh, from the Bush administration, which provided uh, a draft of the legislation that, that uh, most of the provisions of which ended up in the final bill. So this was the most significant restructuring of the intelligence community since the 1947 National Security Act. It was a big deal. And as you said, it created the Director of National Intelligence as a new strengthened leader uh, of a better integrated intelligence community and also the National Counterterrorism Center mandated information sharing between agencies. It, it did a significant amount of, of important work. Now we actually held a conference in Austin in the fall of uh, 2014 addressing just the question you asked on the 10th anniversary of the IRTPA. We invited the DNI, uh, his predecessors, the CIA director, a number of other folks down to Austin to answer the question, 10 years after intelligence reform, are we smarter, are we safer? Uh, And we had a terrific discussion there. There are different views. My own view is that we've not gone far enough yet with change. Uh, I 
I don't believe that the IRTPA was a perfect piece of legislation, but I believe that the steps it made were positive ones and that our intelligence community functions better and keeps us safer if it's uh, led by a strong central leader, and that leader is the Director of National Intelligence. So I'm generally in favor of that. There would be a number of other folks who could, particularly from my, my former agency, the CIA, who might sit here and, and, and argue that, that the changes made in the IRTPA, the stand-up of the Director of National Intelligence Office, some of these other steps were not positive and that we should go back to the system as it existed in, before the 9-11 attacks. I don't think that's going to happen, and I don't think that would be wise. Mm -hmm. uh, but like many other folks, I am pointing to the upcoming election and a new president after two uh, eight-year uh, presidents after 16 years of two men holding the office, we'll have a fresh look at the U.S. intelligence community. And ultimately, this community exists to serve the president. They, at the president's daily brief staff, they refer to him as him or her as the first customer. And so the new president will have a, an opportunity to evaluate whether this community is serving their information needs or not. And if they're not, or if the new president is not uncomfortable, not completely comfortable, with how the intelligence community is functioning, how it's organized, or how it's led, they have tremendous flexibility to make changes by executive order. I would not argue for opening up the IRTPA to a new round of congressional amendment. Uh, I think the president has it within his or her authority to shape the intelligence community to suit the president's needs uh, without new legislation, and I would encourage the next president to do that. I think there's a lot of people at your former employer that would say that the DCI was a strong central leader that could have taken care of the rest of the intelligence community. But for those of us that aren't ex-agency, I completely understand what you're saying. I want to talk about your, your new job um, at the University of Texas um, in Austin. Um, one interesting thing that I saw is, is your, one of your mission statements uh, that the, the program at the University of Texas was created out of a conviction that the activities of the U.S. intelligence community were increasingly critical to safeguarding our national security and yet were understudied by universities. And this, this forget the university part, but this is really part and parcel of the mission statement of the museum. And we, we've noticed that the, the American public is, is unfortunately, and not the listeners of this podcast, because you wouldn't be listening to this if you weren't halfway educated about it, but the majority of the American public is, is not understanding the role and importance of intelligence. And, and when, when this was stood up, was there an idea of, I mean, you can only do so much at one university. I mean, is this, are you trying to create essentially a, a benchmark, a gold standard that perhaps other universities may follow? Or are you just thinking more modestly than that? And let's say, um, who can we actually put out into the world that has a better understanding of intelligence work? Well, that, that's a great phrase, gold standard. If you don't mind, I'll borrow it. Mm -hmm. um, no, I've, I've been very lucky after I retired from uh, federal service. I was privileged to be offered a position at the University of Texas at Austin, the LBJ School of Public Affairs. And so I have the opportunity to teach there on the faculty, courses on intelligence, and also lead, as you said, uh, the Intelligence Studies Project. So this is a very exciting uh, development, exciting for me, exciting for the university. And it's designed to do precisely uh, what that mission statement said, and that is to bring greater academic and public attention to the craft, 
the discipline, the, the study of, an, of intelligence. And in that respect, we're, we're, we're kindred souls. We have a common mission. I, we congratulate you for making intelligence accessible and entertaining. And uh, it's just real exciting to walk through your lobby full of school groups and visitors to Washington all getting excited and along the way learning some things mm -hmm. uh, about a little understood profession. Well, taking that just up a notch right. uh, to the university and the academic environment, which you're also familiar with, and the fact of the matter is that the U.S. intelligence community cost the American taxpayers upwards of $60 billion a year, and the number was higher just a few years ago, and there are 100,000 or more people, not including contractors, who make a living in U.S. intelligence, trying to warn the U.S. president of, 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 uh, of building threats, trying to support the policy development process with objective, accurate, timely information. This is very serious business, yet uh, you may be able to, but few other people could name me five universities in the United yeah. States where a student can take a course and understand the role that the U.S. intelligence community has played in the history of our country, in the prosecution of our wars, in the fight against terrorism. And there is such a role. So anyway, this was the fundamental recognition, and I have to say it wasn't mine. Uh, we have a great team at the University of Texas. It doesn't hurt to have the <laughs> chancellor of the entire UT system be William McRaven, who uh, has a little bit of history involved with this as well. Well, that's right. So Bill McRaven was a former JSOC commander and one of the architects, actually commanding officer at stages of the Osama bin Laden raid, a, a great patriot, a great educator. Uh, the university president, Greg Fenves, strongly supports what we're doing. My colleague on the second floor at the LBJ school is Admiral Bobby Inman, uh, who's a, a just a phenomenal figure in the history of U.S. intelligence, was the NSA director and later the deputy director of central intelligence during the Carter and Reagan administrations. And so we have a wealth of expertise there. We have thousands of uh, energetic enthusiastic uh, undergraduate and graduate students and a whole lot of them are interested in public service and for many of them, that means that means service in uh, the defense department the national security or intelligence communities and so it's just a heck of a lot of fun it's a great challenge uh, to help prepare these folks for that give them some of the knowledge some of the skills they're going to need to come up here and be the next leaders of U.S. intelligence and and we've even given them a role model in this case in that You'd mentioned the CIA director, John Brennan, uh, happens to be a University of Texas alumnus, holds a degree in government. And so he's an example to all the kids on campus that, um, that if they put their nose to the grindstone, uh, work hard at what they do and, and uh, succeed, uh, they too can lead a major intelligence agency. But we do want to be, we, we want to serve our own campus community. We want to serve the University of Texas system. And I would be delighted if we eventually became a model for similar programs at other schools. Well, what really stood out to me this last primary season, now that, thank God we're beyond that, um, was I was sitting with a bunch of very smart professionals watching the Democratic primary debate and when Martin O'Malley started talking about needing more humans. And now he didn't really know what he was talking about and neither the audience really didn't know what he was talking about. but more startling to me was I was around a lot of people who had master's degrees and who worked in politics and they're like, what did he say? And they're like, human, human intelligence. This, you know, this is, and, and it was just, 
it was startling that I know he's using acronyms. I know we, we throw around these, you know, imminent and massin and people don't necessarily know them in the real world. But the fact that no one really understood what he was saying, including Martin O'Malley, was just something that that really kind of codified what we, we believe here at the museum, that we need to do something. Because it, there's nothing more important than an American presidential election for the American public to understand some of the issues. And the issues for this election and probably the next one and the next one after that are going to involve intelligence matters, whether it's Russia or Iranian nuclear weapons or ISIS or drones or anti-terrogation, all these things that are somehow involved with the intelligence community. And it, it seems impossible to create a well-informed citizenry without integrating intelligence into the curriculum of at least college. And it's interesting. I mean, I yeah, I do know the couple of places around the country. Uh, I tried to do something with it at University of Maryland before I left, and it didn't catch on. But hey, uh, it, it's it's a it's a great thing that that you have now stood up at UT Austin, uh, and I would love to have a place where there would be an undergrad intelligence, like not just a course, like a whole system of courses there. Right. Well, that's thanks for that encouragement. I mean, the University of Texas is is an exciting place for lots of reasons. We have tremendous support and momentum behind this program. We're going to do our best with it. Uh, you and I aren't the only ones who think that the intelligence profession needs a little bit more needs to be a little bit more accessible, understandable to the American public. It is at the center of our national security uh, debates. As you mentioned, there's not an issue that is not going to turn, uh, not a national security issue that isn't going to turn decisively on the quality of our intelligence performance. Yet it's little discussed and little understood. We're going to do what we can uh, at the graduate and undergraduate level at the University of Texas. The Director of National Intelligence has put a lot of his energy behind a transparency initiative. He also thinks it's important that he and other community leaders get out there and talk to the American people about intelligence. Now. We also have to understand that with those people out talking about intelligence, that's a double-edged sword. There are costs to that because to be effective, intelligence operations need to be secret. Right. And while the director and the director of CIA and NSA and other organizations are out educating uh, and talking to the American public so that the voters understand more about this profession, they're also sharing that information with the Chinese, the right. Russians, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and a number of people who don't mean us well. And so they have to be careful, uh, as do we. But I think it's, it's time and energy well spent. And uh, we'll appreciate our continued relationship yeah. with you in the museum. And, and uh, I know our students certainly enjoyed their tour and, and meeting with you when they were here. We'd like to thank our great sponsor, Mac Weldon, for continuing to support the SpyCast family. Remember, you can get 20% off at MacWeldon.com by using the promo code SPYCAST. That's MacWeldon.com. Key in the promo code SPYCAST and get 20% off. Well, Steve Slick is the director of the Intelligence Studies Project at the University of Texas at Austin. He also teaches at the LBA School of Public Affairs. If you are a high school junior or senior or you are an undergrad thinking about grad school, I highly recommend checking out their website. Uh, you have to Google it. It comes right up. Uh, it tells all about the program, what kind of courses they offer. It's an extraordinary program. It seems to be one of a kind. uh, And it's something that's definitely, uh, hopefully going to be around for a long time. So Steve, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here today on SpyCast. My pleasure, Vince. Thank you. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we'll post a new podcast 
available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. That's INTLSpyCast. Talk to you next week. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Thank you.